Involvement with the criminal justice system is life-changing. It matters. Having a justice system that works is a really important part of a democratic society. I'm Penelope Gibbs, Director of Transform Justice. I'm Rob Allen. I've worked in and around criminal justice all my career. This is the Transform Justice podcast. Throwing light on the criminal justice system. Hearing from people who know. It's about whether the system's fair. And what can be done to make it better. Welcome back. Today we're going to discuss crimes that aren't prosecuted. Not crimes that the police never investigate, though there are lots of those, but crimes which police deal with out of court. To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr Peter Nehru, who teaches evidence-based policing at the University of Cambridge, and Pav Dalawal, who leads the charity Revolving Doors. Also, of course, by Rob Allen. Rob, this is an area that's little studied or understood, a kind of under-the-radar area of policing. But what exactly are we talking about when the police resolve crime out of court? Well, Penelope, unlike many countries, we've never had a a rule here that everybody accused of crime has to be prosecuted and appear in court. So lots of different options have developed over the years to deal with them out of court. Some of them informal warnings, the police taking no further action, bring an absolute end to the matter. Others, like cautions that we're going to talk about, can have repercussions for individuals. They might have to do certain things. They might get a a criminal record. It's particularly used with young people and and vulnerable uh, defendants, but not solely. It's proved a useful way of dealing with all sorts of minor offending. Peter, most crime is not reported and a lot is not detected. But a third of crime which is resolved is dealt with out of court. So why is it so little known about? It's quite a difficult one to report in, in, the, in the main media as a, as a positive story. Um, I mean, there have been a few attempts to try it, but having found myself on the front page of The Sun being described as an apology for a chief constable for daring to suggest the idea of conditional cautioning, it's probably because it's quite high stakes to talk about it in detail. Could you just explain what conditional cautioning is? Yeah, so conditional cautioning was a was a, a development where the regime which involved simply giving someone a warning, sometimes a structured warning in the form of a caution, was extended to the idea that slightly more significant offences could be dealt with with a caution with some additional work. So paying back the victim or doing some unpaid work. Can we sort of go back to basics and... and- Pav, can I ask you, why don't we just prosecute everyone accused of crime, put it through the courts, and then people get the response they need? Well, simply because it doesn't work. We have a situation in which we have, uh, I think, the highest prison population in Western Europe, um, extremely high uh, re-offending rates, um, and we know that out-of-court solutions do actually work better for particular cohorts of people. So I think it's important to say that the cohort of people that we work with um, are people whose offending behaviours are largely driven by unmet health and social needs, such as drug and alcohol addictions, homelessness, uh, mental ill health, domestic abuse. So therefore, when you're thinking about what works in order for people to be able to turn their lives around and not to offend, then 
prosecuting and sending people to prison is not that. We know what does work um, and we have good evidence, but that's not where the attention goes. And that's not currently the system in which we operate. Peter, would you agree with that? Isn't there an argument that if you put these sort of people into courts, the courts could come up with some sort of solution to their problems? Well, it may be an argument along those lines, but there's absolutely no evidence that that's going to happen. Uh, quite apart from which, uh, just at this particular moment in time and for the foreseeable future, it's a pretty terrible idea to put more cases through the courts. They're struggling to cope with the ones they've got. I mean, you, you introduced the session saying it was a relatively poorly researched or understood area. Well, there is quite a lot of research on diverting people with cautions or simply not taking action. And it looks as if uh, diversion works better than taking the same sort of people to court in the first place. So why on earth would you put people through that process, take them to a magistrate's court where they largely first off get a fine, um, and, and when they do get uh, community service or, or any form of those type of structured processes, that's at an enormous significant cost and much further down the track. Whereas a caution, you can get somebody processed, dealt with, their behaviour sorted out and confronted within a matter of hours, and if, if not, certainly not more than a few days. So all in all, a better idea, faster, quicker, better. So let's delve a little into another of the options that is available, though probably not as widely as the, as the caution, which is deferred prosecution, which is an option you've really championed, Peter. Can you use an example of a person accused of a crime to illustrate how this deferred prosecution idea works? So we tested it in a, uh, the idea in a trial in Birmingham uh, almost a decade ago. The aim of the exercise is to hold the prosecution process over someone in return for them doing something about their offending behaviour, something that they agree would help. Let's take a reasonably controversial one for the sake of argument, which was a young woman who assaulted uh, a police officer. She was, uh, she was out on the street, she was clearly drunk. The police officer thought it would be a good idea for her safety uh, and the safety of everybody else around her to take her home uh, and get her out of harm's way. At the point where she was decanting her from the police car to take her home, the, the, the woman assaulted the police officer. What happened then was that particular case went into our trial, so it went into a deferred prosecution, and the two conditions that she was asked to abide by and which she agreed to was to go through a restorative justice meeting with the police officer uh, and to have a meeting uh, with a, with a counsellor about her alcohol uh, use. So some people might not understand what a restorative justice meeting with a police officer is. Literally, she and the police officer sat down in a room with somebody who was trained in restorative justice. The mediator asked the offender to tell the police officer why she'd uh, committed the offence. And in fact, what happened very quickly was a, was a friendly conversation in which the police officer said... I'm so relieved it wasn't me, it wasn't my behaviour that provoked you to assault me. So the process ended up with the pair of them uh, shaking hands. The, 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 the woman went off to have a further conversation with somebody who was trained to help her with her alcohol issues. Uh, she didn't re-offend in the four-month period that was the contract, so the deferred prosecution was released. Um, and... I th my, my recollection of our spreadsheet was she hadn't re-offended full stop when we last looked at the data. So that's what we're aiming to achieve. 
there are some fantastic examples of good practice happening up and down the country. Um, I think that for the group of people that we work with and something that we advocate for is that type of approach not to be limited to first-time offences because any of us who will know um, anybody who has any sort of a drug or alcohol problem or even um, mental health issues, it's very unlikely on the first time round of going into treatment that you will be successful. And talking to to our members that we work with, uh, people with lived experience of the criminal justice system, it's normally on the fifth, sixth, seventh time round. And so the eligibility should be extended. So actually, you can be put back into those schemes repeatedly, uh, particularly when you suffer from one of those, uh, said one of those sort of underlying causes, which we know take uh, take a few times. I, I completely agree. In the Turning Point Birmingham trial, the issue was having to set a set of eligibility criteria which were acceptable to do something which we'd never done before, which was to compare the court process directly with a with a form of diversion and particularly to randomise it so that we had equal pots of people that we were comparing. But it's still the case that pushing it to third, fourth, fifth and sixth offences is tricky uh, in a criminal justice system where, you know, the, basically the lawyers think it's their business at that point. And, and the lawyers in this case, largely being the Crown Prosecution Service, who, who have been very influential in setting the eligibility criteria that which would allow the police to do this. I mean, we've got new cautioning approaches coming in in legislation. They have been tied down so tightly that what you're proposing is going to be tough for forces to do. Pav, uh, Revolving Doors, you've championed a programme from the from the States called LEAD, I think. Is, is this the kind of thing that you've been talking about? What does that involve? Yep, so this is an approach, the original intention of which was to tackle some of the racial disparities that were being seen in the, in the system. And it's a pre-arrest diversion. And what you have is police officers against the revolving door group. It's the repeat low-level um, offences. Instead of arresting them, they then refer them into the lead programme, where the individual is assigned a case manager who then works with the individual to tackle the underlying causes of uh, its primarily addictions. And it's not time limited. And that's really key, because particularly if you have sort of underlying deep seated trauma, that's not going to be a sort of like, okay, well, six months, you're off the books now, because you're successful in this programme. It's about meeting people where they're at. And that's what's really important. One of the, the key things about the lead approach is that the relationship is the intervention. What, what does that mean? The relationship is the intervention? Because you're basically talking about people who have completely disengaged with any type of service, who have deep distrust of the system. And so it's not as simple as saying, well, here you go, here's some, here's some housing, you can go there, we've sorted out this problem, because actually not, they're not going to engage with that. And so the lead approach is really innovative in that it's about one individual building up a relationship and having that consistency and waiting until that person is ready to engage with the service and then they will be put into treatment programmes. I mean, it sounds great. It sounds expensive, Pav. So is there anything like it operating in this country or what kind of reception have you had for trying to get it going? 
So we're actually quite hopeful that we might be able to set up two small pilots. Yes, I think that on the face of it, it sounds like, oh, this is a really expensive approach. But you have to remember when we're talking about multiple disadvantage, so a combination of different issues that a person is dealing with, we're actually talking about a, a, a very small cohort of people. And if you set that against the cost of sending that individual to prison, then all of a sudden it doesn't seem as expensive an approach. And Peter, we've been talking about measures that involve the person who's been dealt with doing something or getting some help. But actually, in most out-of-court disposals, it's just simply a, a kind of a, a telling off or a caution, isn't it? How does that work? Because the evidence is surprisingly quite positive, isn't it, about that? Yeah, and I think the critical thing with that is that the the, the, the moment where somebody gets arrested, which is the real teachable moment is followed through very quickly with a conversation in which it's made quite clear uh, that, that the offending behaviour is not acceptable and if it happens again, there will be more consequences. End of. Leave the police station and leave contact with the criminal justice system, which is not good for people on the whole. Um, and it, you know, it leaves a trace. It can leave a trace in the form of a, of a record which uh, gets end- endlessly brought up in their attempts to get empl- gainfully employed. So trying to deal with things briskly and as informally as possible is is quite an efficient way and quite an effective way of, of doing things. And we were able to show reasonably compellingly, given some of the constraints of the research, there was about a 60% difference in favour of doing something fast and getting people out of the police station with as little fuss as possible. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that fits in with other evidence, doesn't it, about the speed and certainty of consequences being more important than the the harshness of them, I think. Peter, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about is about the person who committed the crime and the benefits to them of not going to court. So Pav was talking about her client group and how uh, they had huge needs, which were better met out of court. And I think a lot of people would say, but mm, if they committed a crime, what about the victim? You know, victims want redress in some way. They certainly want the person who committed the crime to do something about it. So this could be seen as really soft justice. What evidence is there about victims and how they feel about the police saying, oh, no, this person doesn't need to go to court? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like this dichotomy between soft and tough. Um, it's it's nonsense. It's what works that's more important but it was a good question that we were asked right early on in the Turning Point trial. So we're there devising, you know, this first grand experiment, testing uh, a deferred prosecution, so a form of diversion against prosecution. And about uh, three or four months in, the chief officer team said, well, what about the victims? Um, and we had actually done some work. We we'd followed up with a, with a small sample of the first ones. And we'd found, actually, that one of the problems were that classically the same as everywhere in the criminal justice system they just hadn't been told properly what the hell was going on so we set up a scheme where there was a script uh, which was reasonably well trained into the officers who were going to tell people what was going on uh, which explained what's happening why it's being proposed to use a, a form of diversion what that diversion would be to ask the victims views about uh, the conditions that were being proposed and whether they had any others or better conditions that they thought might be included to explain what was going to happen next and the consequences that would happen if the offender didn't comply 
and also to make sure that they were told that they would be informed when the four months of the contract were up and that you know what was happening at that stage. And we then went and surveyed uh, the, the victims and we found that there was actually nearly a 50% increase in the satisfaction of the victims who'd had their cases deferred in the deferred prosecution model. And the, the bottom line turned out to be what they really wanted to see was that the police and the authorities were making a genuine attempt to try and prevent it happening again. Those that had had a breach of trust, they wanted punishment, full capital P punishment. But that was a very small number of people. Most people wanted to see that there was not going to be a next victim or that we'd at least taken a pretty decent set of steps to try and stop that happening. So this idea that victims are fixed on their day in court, that challenges it, doesn't it? Well, I've not encountered very many victims who actually want a day in court. <laughs> I mean, that's that's not where most people come from. And if they did want a day in court, they'd mostly be pretty disappointed. I mean, the idea that it's, you know, it's tough justice to give someone a £60 fine for really quite a substantive offence, as opposed to ask them to do 40 hours or so of unpaid work um, to pay back to the community. You know, for example... And a lot of our offenders in Birmingham were going and, and working in charity shops. They were asked to do 40 hours in their own time as opposed to paying a £60 fine. The community got something back. The offender got something back, which is they did the unpaid work. And many of them got a great deal out of that process. There was justice that was seen to be done. If there was compensation that needed to be paid, that could also be sorted out as part of the, part of the contract. I mean, you mentioned that justice was seen to be done but one of the criticisms of this whole approach is that actually the decisions are are kind of made secretly and privately and there isn't sufficient scrutiny do you think there's any merit in that yeah i can see i can see the criticism but you know we've developed a range of oversight and police forces should be much better at giving the feedback to victims exactly what has happened i mean a personal phone call or a text because that finishes the story and by the way Please don't think that they get that kind of feedback from the court. Police officers can't find out what the court results were. Mm. I suppose the argument is that the court is in theory at least an open setting where the public can attend and see how justice decisions are being reached. Rob, whereas we closed 50% of the courts. For the vast majority of victims, many of whom are not well off, to have to travel you know, an hour on inadequate public transport to get to a court and to then find their case has been has been deferred onto another date, or is dealt with in three or four minutes of, of rambling mumbo jumbo. You know, it really isn't a great comparison with a with a personal phone call from a police officer explaining what the hell has happened. Mm. Each of you has made pretty compelling arguments for for more use of this kind of out of court approach, but the data seems to suggest that that actually it's not being used as optimally as it could. That the, that the, the numbers of cases dealt with this way isn't increasing in the way that perhaps on the basis of what you said it should be. Pav, why do you think that is? Why, why hasn't this really taken off more? I think a key thing is forces having the flexibility to take these approaches and not having that flexibility taken away from them. Sometimes they're seen as being overly bureaucratic or it feels like it's going to take more time. But we see really strong will and good examples across individual forces um, to do this. Because, of course, for our cohort, the police are picking up these same people time and time and time again. And it can be intergenerational as well. And they know that the solution for these people 
doesn't lie within the criminal justice system. We've had uh, comments made around, oh, we would love to divert people. Where? To which services? We're talking about communities uh, in which entire swathes of services and youth clubs and active, like diversionary activities have been cut. So I don't think it's as easy as to say that, oh, well, why, why are they not doing it? Because there are so many options available to them. It has to be a national framework. Pav, can you give an example of somebody uh, that you've worked with who, who's benefited from the police dealing with their case out of court? So we have examples of uh, young people who have had very bad experiences uh, with the police, but then there'll be an individual officer who decides to take a different approach and refers them on to a different service. It may be to deal with a drug problem. It may be to deal with something around neurodiversity. And going into that service and there being an individual and that same individual has been available to them um, when they have had to come back into the service, that's, that seems to be the key around making a difference. There's some evidence that people from minoritised communities are less likely to be diverted from court to these kind of programmes. Why is there an issue with people from minoritised communities getting their crime resolved out of court? Institutional racism. It's nothing new. Because a lot of this is to do with the discretion in terms of, is this something that is going to go to be dealt with out of court? Or is this something that is going to proceed um, through the court system? And these are decisions that are made by individuals working within a system in which there is sort of entrenched systemic discrimination. There is also obviously huge concerns over the new regime um, in which there is a admission of guilt that's required. And again, we're talking about communities um, and individuals who have a deep distrust of the system because of the way that the system handles them. And the evidence is so long standing that it would be ridiculous for me to say, oh, well, the problem is this one small area here. And if we just fix this one area here, but there are examples, again, of good practice. Um, Peter, it may have been one of your programmes in which the evaluation was done and had uh, good success rates with, I think, Asian men who were diverted. Yeah, it was a turning point. But we've known that the potential for that cautioning decision to be discriminatory for 40 years since uh, two Israeli academics did a study in the Metropolitan Police in 1983 uh, and demonstrated the, the, just the sort of effects that, that Pav has been talking about. It's a little bit of a vicious circle. If you don't trust the police as much as a, as a person of the same age from a, from a different background, you're less likely to be prepared to admit the offence early. If the requirement is to admit the offence, then you're less likely to get uh, access to the, to, the, to the diversion. If, on the other hand, you can take that, that process out, there's no evidence in Turning Point that there was a substantial difference in the outcome between those who'd fully admitted and those who hadn't. So so with Turning Point, was it the case that actually you you overturned that? That you said, yeah. um, actually, the person just has to accept to do this programme, but they didn't actually have to formally sign a piece of paper saying, mea culpa, and that that benefited people from minoritised communities? Correct. Where we got to this was we, we were discussing the eligibility crisis. So, how, you know, what cases could we put into this system and we came to the issue of the admission of guilt and one of the West Midlands uh, senior West Midlands officers said but of course we know it's a barrier to uh, you know getting young black and Asian 
offenders into, into cautioning. I said, well, why don't we leave it out? Why don't we not require that and see what happens, which is exactly what we did. And it, it's not as straightforward as saying, you know, it led to better results, but certainly the black and Asian offenders did significantly better than one would have expected them to have done if it was a prosecution process. So it certainly was an improvement and we certainly gave more access and I think this is a point that was picked up by David Lammy, wasn't it, in his review of discrimination in the criminal justice system, the idea of trying to encourage more use of the deferred prosecution without a formal admission of guilt. Can, can I move on to the politics a little bit? I mean, from what we've heard, it does sound as though getting more cases dealt with out of court seems a win-win for for everybody, but there does seem to be a bit of a political block about embracing this as, a, as a, a way forward. Why do you think that is and what can we do about it, if anything, to try and win more political support for this sort of agenda? Peter? Uh, well, you put your finger on one of the issues right at the start, which is um, not enough people know, uh, you know about, about how this process works. Um, and we've not seen enough good stories about this. I mean, when television does 24 hours in police custody, we don't tend to see the caution cases. It wouldn't hurt for us to, to see that and to seek to follow some of those cases through. They won't all work. Some of them will go wrong. And some of them, as Pavis said, there'll be people who need the third and fourth and fifth attempt. That's one. Second one, I mean, the muddle of policy over the last decade has been absolutely miserable. I mean, you know, a justice minister kicks off a review of cautioning uh, in 2014. And that process itself took three or four years to, to result in a suggestion of a model of two-tier, which would have had deferred prosecution at the top and some form of community resolution. They tested that. That took another period of time. Then we went round another round of consultation, by which time we'd had about five or six ministers of justice, none of whom got their head round the brief at all. And then we end up with a bill which looks nothing like the process that was tried. Frankly, we wanted a horse and we ended up with a pantomime camel. And we've, and we've got a whole series of eligibility criteria that will not make this happen because of something we learnt about when we introduced the conditional cautioning process nearly 20 years ago. And that was that if you create something which creates a load more paperwork for young pressed police officers and it's easier to do a, a, a prosecution file, they'll do the prosecution file. And I, I guarantee that unless... There's substantial political effort, and I see no evidence that this will be forthcoming, that the changes that will come will have the same miserable result as the changes in, in when we introduce conditional cautioning. It needs political impetus, it needs real-world evidence out there, and it needs real grip from those who are in charge of the process within forces. Pav, what are your hopes and fears for this new system of what are called out-of-court disposals, which is going to be introduced this year, maybe next? <laughs> Not dissimilar to Peter, I think that the political will has has not been there. Um, it feels very shambolic. The fact that the simple caution has now uh, has now gone is a huge concern. I think that serious attention needs to be paid to this area, if only because what we're seeing now increasingly is the criminalisation of poverty. We are in a cost of living crisis. People are committing crimes of desperation, essentially. We're hearing of supermarkets who are padlocking their, you know, sections for fear of people stealing butter and, and you know, and other types of food. 
it feels like now is not the time to have a really draconian regime where people would be prosecuted or police are having to be called out to, to these sort of cases. There needs to be a system which is humane, one that isn't seen in isolation from every other social policy area. Something that really struck me when one of the most senior police officers uh, retired a year, year and a half ago, when asked what he would do if he had a £5 billion budget, it was Andy Cook. He said he'd spend four billion of that on tackling poverty and deprivation. And so my fear is that the government continues to be completely siloed in its thinking and putting a disproportionate focus on law and order, thinking this is a vote winner, when actually, said the most vulnerable people in our society are the ones who pay the cost of that. So on that note, if if you were each in a position where you could make one change, say you were Prime Minister, Home Secretary, Minister of Justice, what one thing would you do to try and get more crimes resolved out of court and, and to promote out-of-court disposals? Peter, what would you do? I mean, it certainly wouldn't hurt for a minister to actually come out and talk positively with good examples about why this would be good. Um, and that, I mean, that would help. I don't anticipate that's going to be happening anytime soon, by the way. And I suppose if I'm allowed a second one, it's the importance of really getting the training right for new young officers. Um, if we can get into their minds the importance of this as a preventive measure and explain to them why it works and how it works, there's a decent chance that the next generation of officers will, will own that in the way that the ones in Turning Point did. I mean, they were enthusiasts by the end of the trial and were quite upset when the thing had to stop because we'd finished the experiment. Mm. What about you, Pav? So given the state of the criminal justice system as it is, I think thinking specifically about the group of people that we work with, it would be the introduction of pre-arrest diversion to make sure that those prevention and treatment services are available. To be truly trauma-informed, people would not be having any contact with the criminal justice system. So it would be an investment and national framework around pre-arrest diversion. Rob, what about you? What one thing would you do? Well, I would certainly enable the police to continue to be able to make a simple caution in cases where nothing more is required. We don't want to spend resources on people who don't need it. But I do think for those that do need help, we do need to ensure there are things that the police can refer people to that will help them with the kind of problems we've heard about. Rob, I think that's two things. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thanks to Rob, Peter and Pav. And if you've enjoyed this particular episode, do listen to the other ones that we've got up there on all good platforms and rate us. Thanks very much and goodbye. 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 Bye. Bye.